Yeah, bring it, Pastor Lloyd. Good morning, High Point Church. Um, it's good to be with you uh, this morning. Um, if you can bring up that first slide. This morning, we are going to continue in the, the series that we have been doing uh, in Colossians, uh, being heavenly minded. And this morning, we're going to look at Colossians uh, 3, 10 through 17, um, with an emphasis on, on uh, verse 10. Um, in past weeks, Pastor Nick, uh, in fact, last week, talked about putting off the old man of sin and death. And verse 10 says, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Dear Lord, uh, as the worship team has sung to you, uh, I, I feel the same way. Oh, how I need you. Oh, how I need you to strengthen me and to use me to present your word uh, clearly and accurately so that your people uh, can hear and understand, Lord, that uh, those who may not uh, have embraced you, Lord, will begin to, to understand you better. And so just bless us this morning, Lord, uh, during this time of, of, of preaching. In Christ's name I pray, amen. The U.S. Marines have a saying, <clears throat> becoming a Marine is a transformation that cannot be undone. They take a willing civilian, thank you, Jared, and after a 12 and a half week basic training course is completed, the civilian becomes a, as a soldier who lives by the Marine motto, Semper Fidelis. This is Latin. It means always faithful. Now, this 12 and a half weeks is the longest basic training course in the armed forces. And the Marines say almost without exception that uh, because of this uh, uh, service, that it is one of the most difficult things that they've ever done in their lives. Nonetheless, upon completion, they are dedicated to being always faithful. Um, so this to their to the Marine Corps, always faithful to the mission at hand, always faithful to the country, especially in times of difficult battles. Once made, the Marine will will live forever by the ethics and values of the Corps, chief of which are honor and courage and commitment. Now the Marines have the distinct responsibility to be the first to fight. In fact, in 1952, the Congress said, clarified their mission. The Marine Corps must be the most ready when the nation is generally the least ready to provide a balanced force and readiness for a naval campaign and at the same time, a ground and air striking force ready to suppress or contain international disturbances short of large scale war. That is to say that any time that we have to do something quick, it's the Marines who are sent out to get the job done. And um, uh, one of the things that I particularly appreciate in terms of their tradition is their Marine Corps hymn. You'll, you'll remember the tune, dun 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 right? The Marine Corps hymn. Now it's got three or four verses. This is my favorite verse. In the snow off far off northern lands, 
and in sunny tropic scenes. In other words, wherever there's a fight. You will find us always on the job, the United States Marines. Here's health to you and to our Corps, which we are proud to serve. In many a strife, we fought for life and never lost our nerve. See, the Marines believe that something inside them changes when they take their Marine Corps pledge, when they complete their training, they become new persons with a new identity. They become warriors who are always faithful to the country, full of character, full of honor, full of courage, full of commitment, that demonstrate this new conduct of boldness and creativity and decisiveness and even compassion. In similar manner, this morning in Colossians 3, 10 through 17, Paul describes believers as people who have been given a new identity in Christ Jesus and who live in a new manner based upon that new identity. So this morning I want to focus on two things. The first thing is this, that Christ has given his followers a new identity and that second, out of this new identity, his followers will live in new ways. We'll focus on new identity. First, for this new identity, there's three points I want to make. One, you got to know who you are. Second, you got to know who you're not. And third, you need to embrace who you are. Just a reminder from Colossians 3, uh, verse 10, have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. The new birth of a believer is after the nature of Jesus Christ. He's our spiritual father. And so we as Christians not only believe that God created man out of flesh, we believe that spiritually, once we come to faith in Christ, we are newly created by Christ infusing his spirit in us. The old man, the person before repentance from sin, before faith in Christ, before the receipt of the Spirit, even at his best, possessed just the life of Adam. This was the first man who sinned and by his sin broke fellowship with God and died. But the new man, the believer in Christ, has power, the power of God in him. One of my favorite theologians and preachers is A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer uh, wrote many books uh, and was a highly, uh, just an awesome pastor in Chicago in the 50s and 60s. This is one of Tozer's quotes. When God infuses eternal life into the spirit of a person, the person becomes a new, higher order of being. Now, through repentance of sin and faith in Christ, Jesus has transformed our very identity. Now, Pastor Nick has been talking about this very specifically the last couple of weeks, so I only have to summarize here. But what Jesus has done for us is that he has united us with himself, so much so that he's even given us a new name, that everyone who confesses Christ is now called Christian. He sanctifies us. That is to say that what he has done is taken us out of the dominion of sin and death, out of that muck, and have placed us into righteousness. That, that is to say, because of the Holy Spirit living in us, we don't have to sin. Jesus has broken down the penalty of sin 
and broken the power of sin so that you now can walk in righteousness. Jesus has sanctified us. And also Jesus has regenerated us. That is to say that by his Holy Spirit in us, he has given us this ability to understand him. He guides us. He teaches us. He comforts us. You know, Christ lives in us. The hope of glory, Pastor Nick has talked about. Jesus is in us. And then he justifies us by his own death on the cross. He has declared us righteous. The one who died is the one who judges. And though many of us have done many sinful things in our past and even now continue in sin, Jesus, because of his death on the cross, because of your faith in him, because of your repentance, because of your acceptance of him as Lord, because of the receipt of the Holy Spirit, you are declared righteous. That's awesome. For an eternity, that's an awesome promise that we have in Jesus. What I'm trying to say is that you are a new person. He has done a spiritual makeover in us. And, 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 and um, think of it this way. Back to my marine illustrations. They do basic training in two different places. In Paris Island, South Carolina, and in San Diego, California. When new recruits report for their first day of basic training, the drill sergeant takes them up to the place that separates the outside world from the, in, from the interior Marines base. And they, as a ritual, they say something like this. Passing through these hatches symbolizes your transformation from a civilian to a United States Marine, to becoming one of, one, a member of the world's finest fighting force. You will pass through these hatches one time and one time only. And only like a Marine drill sergeant will say, he says, no, do you understand that? So all the people are there. So what do you think they say? Yes, sir. Especially given that this person is going to have complete control over their entire life for the next 13 weeks, right? Yes, sir. Tens of thousands, the Marine continues, the drill sergeant continues, tens of thousands of Marines have begun their outstanding service to our country on the very ground you are standing at right now. He's trying to get them to understand that veterans from World War II, one, were at these very same places in San Diego and California. From World War II, that proud generation, they were standing in that place. He's trying to get them to understand that in Vietnam, that Marines came and were at this place. Every engagement that we've had in Afghanistan right now, the Marines who are serving there, who are dying there, who are protecting our nation. And if we have to go back to Iraq, the Marines are the ones that are gonna be there. He wants them to understand this. Tens of thousands of Marines have begun their outstanding service to our country. He says, you will carry on that proud tradition. Do you understand that? The recruit hollers back, yes sir. You see, the first thing that the drill sergeant wants them to understand is the importance of consecration, of, of, of the importance of dedicating yourself to something more important than yourself. Protecting our nation at the cost of your life, what higher honor could there be for a citizen of the country? So in the same way, we have to recognize that Christ has called us to be someone greater. 
You see, if you have confessed Christ as your Savior and received the Holy Spirit as your guide, you are no longer a sinner, you are a saint. Uh, saint is a word, it simply just means holy ones. And I have found that a lot of Christians have a hard time processing the fact that God has taken them from the place of being a, a sinner, which most Christians understand. They understand the, the sin and the difficulties and the disappointments. They get that. But they have a harder time understanding that God has made them new, that he has given them a new identity. They are a holy one. In fact, this is so phenomenal that even when Christ, when Paul writes to the church in, in Corinth, the church that had divisions, the church that had sexual issues, the church that couldn't take communion properly, right? Even when he writes to that church, what does he call them in the very first salutation, the very first greeting? He says, holy ones, to the dear beloved saints. He has taken us from becoming a sinner and he has made us a saint. You see, you are no longer a slave to sin. Because of the Holy Spirit working in you, you have power, literal got power. The power that rose Jesus from the dead is alive in you. And if you access it, you can avoid sin. You can have victory over sin. He has taken you from being a slave to sin to a servant of righteousness. He has taken you from being a person who is carnal and sensual, and he has made you pure and peaceable and gentle. You have been transformed, and I like the way 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 talks about this. The Bible is for, full of affirmation for people who are having problems with their identity, people who are having self-esteem issues. There are many of us that, are, that struggle with this from time to time. For some of us, it's a constant battle. Others of us occasionally will go through these periods of time when we just really feel like we're not worth anything. Well, to that person, here's what Peter says. He says, you are a chosen generation, that you are a royal priesthood, that you, ladies and gentlemen, you are children of a king. You are a chosen royal priesthood. You are a holy nation out of all the people in the world. There are about seven billion human beings. I'm not sure what the estimates are for Christians, but the Christians are the only ones who can claim legitimately that they are a holy nation, that they are a chosen generation, that they are a royal priesthood. In fact, when God looks from heaven and looks at us, he looks at them like I look at my sons when they sleep at night. If you are a parent, you love your kids. And that's how our God my little bit of affection and my little bit of a power is nothing, but when God looks at us and when he considers what he did to birth us, to bring us into spiritual existence at the cost of his very life, I want to say to you, you are most precious in God's sight. If you are a Christian, you are most precious in God's sight. Amen. That's what we have. If you, are, if you have not embraced Christ, what we want to tell you, if you embrace this Jesus, he will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm gonna give you a testimony about that a little bit later. Jesus is an awesome thing. He has given us this new position to, so that we can proclaim the praises of him who brought us out of our sin and out of our muck and out of our despair and brought us into relationship with him. Many of you have, have adopted kids who had no future. And when your kids get to age, 
And when they get old enough to understand what their life could have been like if they had been left where they were, where perhaps they weren't even necessarily wanted. That's the closest illustration I can give you to the kind of blessing that God has in store for us. Without him, we are nothing, but within him, we are precious children of God, bestowed with all of his power, all of his love is directed towards his children. I'm trying to tell you, you a new generation. Um, do you know who you are? I was, uh, this is a picture of me when I was a lot handsomer. <laughs> I was probably 23 or so when this picture was taken. A lot thinner, too. <laughs> um, when I married Deborah in May 27th of 1989, over 25 years now, when I married her, I loved her a lot, but I really just didn't know what it was going to be like to be a, a husband. I really had no clue. I didn't feel like a man. You know, if you're in that age rank, man or woman, 20 or 25 years old, you're trying to figure it out, man, you know, what kind of career and how, is this, how does this all work and how can I really leave my parents' house? I mean, being independent, come see me about that because this was true 25 years ago of adults, right? We didn't have it all together and I was struggling with my identity. Two months after uh, I got married, my wife came to me and she said, Lord, I got some good news for you. I was like, good news? Yeah, what, what news is that? He said, I'm pregnant. I'm like, oh my God. You're trying to tell me I'm 24, I'm 24, I'm 24. I'm 24, J where's Jason at? I'm four years older than you, 24. And my wife comes and says she's pregnant. And I'm, oh my God, what am I gonna do? On the outside, I was like, oh, this is wonderful, you know? <laughs> some people say, you gotta fake it till you make it. Well, I was faking it. And so, so, so we're, we're going to have a kid. We're going to have a baby. Okay, I get my mind right. We're going to have a baby. And, uh, you know, she's, she's, you know, goes through the normal things that pregnant women go through and the adjustments, and we're, we're making it through. January comes about six months into the pregnancy. Uh, we think everything's going fine. You know, two weeks prior to that, we had had a... Uh, the diagram, what do they call that thing, ultrasound? They had ultrasound? <laughs> yeah, I, sh I should know about these ultrasounds. Now I haven't had th three children. We had ultrasound, everything looked fine. Doctors didn't see anything, no problems. She was doing great. But uh, I was at home and she said, honey, I, so I'm not feeling right, something's wrong. I think I'm going into labor. I said, honey, it's six months, you're not going into labor. I said, Lloyd, I'm not feeling well. I'm, I think I'm going into labor. So we were living in River Forest, just outside of Chicago. Our doctors was in, our hospital was in uh, Arlington Heights, about 30 minutes away. We zoom over to Arlington Heights. The doctors bring her in, they, they check her out. They say, yeah, she is going to labor. So they try to stop it. They, they try whatever medications they can. They recognize that she's too far dilated. They can't stop it. So they say, listen, you're gonna have a child. And I say to the doctor, six months? And I knew enough about science to know that that six months wasn't a, that wasn't a good enough time. There probably wasn't enough time for the child to fully develop. Six months? He said, listen, we don't have the expertise for children who are born premature at our hospital. We have to send your wife to Lutheran General and display. It's about 30 minutes away. So, so Debbie gets in the emergency vehicle. She zips over, and I get in my car, and I drive. And I'm thinking, six months? And I can only imagine what she's thinking. She's thinking that and having pain. So we get over there and they have great doctors and they have great nurses and they get ready to deliver a child at six months. 30 hours of labor, she's you know, going through the normal 
difficulties of labor. I think all of her labors has been over 24 hours, man. I never, I, I'm glad at 50, I don't have to worry too much about that, do I, anymore? <laughs> but anyway, she, um, 30 hours of labor and no sleep, and the baby is about to come. And a, a child is born, a girl, Christian Nicole, about a pound and a half, a little less than a half pound, actually, is born. And uh, uh, the amazing thing is she, all three of our kids were born with full hair of hair. And they kind of looked like their mom, especially early on, light complexion. They, they kind of looked, every picture we have, they were like, oh my God, like twins, three of them, you know? And, uh, but they take the baby and they put them in the incubation and all their doctors and they hook them up to tubes and they, for about the next eight, 10 hours, they do everything possible to save this child's life. And they work really hard and feverishly and we can't even hold the baby. Everything is so precarious. We can't even touch the child. They're just in this big container, this incubator with lights and doctors coming in, going in tubes and, and then the doctors, turn to us and say, we've done everything we can, and she's, she's just not going to make it. And so what we'd like to do is take her out of these tubes and stuff and give you a chance to hold your daughter until she dies. So that's what they do. And they take Christian Nicole, I nicknamed her Millie, and they put her in our laps. And for, I don't know, 20 minutes or so, we hold Christian Nicole and pray and cry. And she had just, she had that new baby smell, just like all the new babies had. And she was fully formed, hair, nails, everything. And, but 20 minutes later, she breathed her last. So you can imagine, <laughs> this was a bad day. This was, I haven't had a day this bad, ever. This was, this was a tough day. And wifey was really tired, 30 hours of sleep without any sleep. Both of us were tired. And I said, honey, I'll spend the night. She was like, Lord, no, you need to go home. You look horrible. <laughs> I'm not sure. That's, that was probably an understatement. You look horrible. You need to go home, and I, I think I would do better sleeping even if you went home. So reluctantly, I got in my little car, and I drove home. And I tell you, I cried and cried and cried. And then I got home. My house, is a, our apartment was three stories. I walked up to the second story. I was in total, I wasn't thinking straight, I was devastated. If I had an identity crisis then before, imagine the identity crisis I had then. And I just opened, all I could do when I got in the door was I had a Bible and I knew where it was and I just flipped it open and this was the passage God draw, drew me to when I flipped the Bible open. January 20th, 1990. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes through a man. For as in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. So something just hit me. Yes. I had been walking through the valley of the shallow death, my wife and I, but God was with us and the promise of Jesus was, yes, I'm taking Millie with me now, but you better believe that there will be a resurrection from the dead and when you were raised, you're gonna see this child again. In fact, verse 55 goes on to say, where, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? 
Jesus in us, the hope of glory is that we are going to be resurrected and we are going to see each other again. We have victory beyond the grave. I'm trying to tell you I needed hope. I was just devastated. My wife was devastated. And, I, and God directed me that I had eternal hope in Christ. And that got me through. The next day, we have a memorial service at the, the church, excuse me, at the hospital, and Debbie and I are coming home. And we get to the gate that separates the house from the outside world, and she says to me, she says, Lloyd, I don't want to go home without the baby. I don't know how we got up those stairs. But we got up there and people ministered to us, her friends came by, and little by little. But what happened inside of me is through that difficulty and through the fact that I knew that God would walk me through those difficult times, the boy became a man. Over, I don't, I'm trying to tell you overnight, I went from a self-centered, self-focused, unclear man to a real, legitimate man of God, like that. You gotta embrace who you are in Christ Jesus. I don't know that you'll have to go through that kind of traumatic situation to embrace Christ, but when you are, guys, those of you who are in small groups, one of the things I want you to talk about is when is it that you really embrace the fact that you were a Christian? You know, the, the, the Lutherans and the Catholics, in fact, I was a, a Catholic, they do a confirmation process to try to help us come to terms with really owning our faith. When is it that you really owned your faith? It's really crucial that you not only know who you are in Christ, that you know who you're not, you're not primarily rich or poor, black or white, or whatever your ethnicity is, but you are in Christ eternally, but it, it's also critically important that you embrace who you are. Because once you do that, then you'll have the power to live out who you are. So you know who you are. My second point is that you then will live out your identity in Christ. And that gets us to verses 13 and 14 in the text. Verses 13 and 14. In fact, let me pick up on um, verse 12b. Clothe yourselves, since you are God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility, gentleness and patience. This is who you are if you are Christian. You possess all of those attributes. Bear with one another and forgive one another. If anyone has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Recognize that our example is Jesus Christ. It's not so much each other as it is first and foremost our example in Christ. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Listen, uh, we are called to holiness and lifestyle. And holiness and lifestyle, I want to suggest to you that there's two components. One is the affection that I love you, that I really legitimately, sincerely care about you, believer and unbeliever. But the other part of that is as important, is that, that I live like I love you. 
You see, if I told my wife I loved her, but I was always pushy and accusatorial, if I never helped her, if I talked bad against her, she would know I was lying. The few times I say I love her just don't add up in terms of my treatment of her. No, as a Christian, we don't just say we love each other, we actually live it out on a day-to-day basis with kindness and tenderness and perseverance with difficult people and forgiveness when people sin against you, as we often do. Now, I like the way this call to authenticity is summed up by uh, Jeff Capel. Jeff Capel was the head basketball coach at Oklahoma when Blake Griffin, who was his star player there for two, three years, and he saw a lot of potential in Blake that just wasn't being materialized. So he, he called Blake into his office, and this is what he told him. He said, Blake, you've got tremendous potential. You have great capability, but you've got to fall in love with the process of becoming great. You see, what we're being called to in verses 12 through 24 is the process of growth in holiness. And we need to begin to love these virtues the way Jesus loves them. Kindness and joy and peace and faithfulness and forgiveness. We need to love that. We need to love holiness. In fact, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God enjoins us to be like him, to be holy as he is holy. And and when we're talking about holiness, what we're talking about is not really complicated. Once you have repented and come to faith in Christ and received the Holy Spirit, holiness really comes down to one key ingredient, obedience. Here's how John said it. Now, by this we know that we know him. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commandments. Now the man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly complete in him. This word there, Greek teleos, it means mature. It means complete. It's the same word from back in Colossians 3.13, where it says that we are perfected in love, same word. We are perfected once we begin to walk out who we are in Christ, to actually follow his word. But if anyone obeys his words, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know who we are. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. So here's the pathway that we're on. First, we embrace who we are in Jesus Christ. We know who we are, what what Christ has done. We begin to embrace it. Then we begin to walk that out. And what results then are the things that we see in verse 15 and 16. The peace of Christ. When you embrace who you are, when you are obedient to Christ, the peace of Christ is going to be yours. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful so that your obedience to Christ then leads to peace and leads to gratitude in your heart. And then it leads you to worship as well. And let the message of Christ dwell among you richly 
as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. So get the picture of this Christian, transformed by Jesus Christ, and they know it, obedient to his word, a recipient of peace, a gratitude that is a natural part of their life, and worship that just flows out of them. And a special kind of worship, a worship in song that has three attributes that the songs teach us that we should learn something about our faith when we come to worship. That's why Nick asked our worship leaders to choose songs that have good theology because we had a discussion amongst us. We, said, we were talking, as a worship leader, am I a disciple? Well, I would say based on this text, yes, because you're a part of a ministry that teaches us about our faith every Sunday. And also, not only do they teach us, but also what should happen in the course of those songs is that we ought to be corrected. That is to say, we ought to recognize in the scriptures where we're wrong, where we're living wrong, and it ought to prompt us to repent on the spot while we're singing. While we're singing God's words, we should repent on the spot. And we are corrected through the music. And the last thing is that we grow in wisdom. That is to say, our songs teach us practical things about how we are to live out our faith. And so this, this morning, I, to, I want to, us to hear and experience the illustration of this is going to come actually in song. So we're going to have an example of a psalm by Deborah. She's going to sing a little small piece of Psalm 121. And then we're going to have Sarah is going to pre- sing, we're going to have Greg is going to sing, Be Thou My Vision, just a taste of a hymn, a great traditional hymn. And then we're also going to have Sarah's going to sing, Lord, I Need You. And as you listen to this song, I want you to look for evidence of songs that teach. I want you to listen for evidence of songs that correct. Listen for evidence of songs that teach us wisdom, how we should live in Christ in the world. I will lift up mine eyes to the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord, the Lord which made heaven and earth. He said he would not suffer thy foot, thy foot to be moved. The Lord that keepeth thee, he will not slumber nor sleep. shall preserve 
God is our vision that we that we need him that he is our help and we are blessed amongst all the churches in Madison that we have very talented worship uh, leaders and we have great diversity in our worship leaders what a blessing God has given us not only do we have psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that he gives us a diversity of Christian music we even have a diversity of people that bless us in that music and I want to say to you that when it comes to worship there's a couple things I want you to be mindful of first of all the the music minister is not the focus of the worship and so I don't know, everybody has their preferences of, you know, I like this one or that one, you know, I want, you know, whatever. That shouldn't be, if you find yourself in the course of our worship set worried about that, then I want you to realign your thinking to Jesus. Because the focus of our worship is Jesus and what he has done for us. That's the first thing. And the second thing is the music style shouldn't be our, our focus. I want to suggest to you that it is a sign of spiritual maturity 
when you learn how to worship God in a style that's not your own. In fact, if we want to facilitate God's local church, being a church for all nations, one of the ways that you can participate that is to learn how to enjoy music outside of your own style. That is what God has called us to. When we get to heaven, all nations. And so earlier, the two gentlemen talked, Derek and, and talked about 21 nations. Well, how about every nation and all kinds of people? That is where our inheritance is. And so here we are at High Point Church. We want to prepare ourselves for that kind of diversity. And one of the ways that we can do that is to embrace what God has already given us at High Point Church. Diverse music and psalms and hymns and spiritual songs as well as the diverse team of, of worshipers. And so here's my, my last point. We have talked about um, our, our identity in Christ. Holiness, I want to say to you lastly, pervades the sum total of our lives. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We, as Christians, we can't dichotomize our lives. And we can't practice love and identity here and not in the classroom at UW or MATC or Madison College or, or the workplace. We've got to love God in all places and we've got to love God in all situations that we're in. Most of us are not going to work in full-time ministry. We're going to work out in the community. Um, I want to give you, to illustrate this, I want to give you a little African-American history. In the turn of the century is when African-Americans began going to colleges at our major universities. Not only the East Coast elite schools, but all across the country. And when they got there, in relatively small numbers, they couldn't break into, it was difficult for them to break into the social systems that were there. So there were fraternities and sororities that were a key part of the social lives, but they weren't welcomed in. And so between 1906 and 1922, eight African-American organizations were founded. These, these students founded eight organizations. And the first of which, was Alpha Phi Alpha Men's Fraternity, founded in 1906 at Cornell University. And the last of which, bear with me, sorry about that. The last of which was Delta Sigma Theta, excuse me, uh, um, the last of which was Sigma Gamma Rho Sorority, founded at Butler University in Indiana in 1922. So between six, for 16 years, these eight organizations were founded. Now my wife, and one of the distinctions about the African-American Greek systems is this, is that it's not just undergraduate based. And so some of us have in mind kind of the undergraduate kind of party kind of scene. Well, the African-American system is a bit different in this regard, that beyond the undergraduate experience, there are hundreds of thousands of people who work in social service in, their, in these organizations beyond high school. They are grad chapters. So the University of Wisconsin has Delta Sigma Theta undergrad and Delta Sigma Theta grad, of which my wife is a member. There are about 45 women, doctors, professors, nurses, secretaries, a part of this organization, college-educated women. And what I've noticed about the Deltas is that when they serve in Madison, they serve in Delta's name, not in their individual name. 
They wear their Delta shirts and Delta jackets, and when they are serving kids or when they are providing a, a community service a organization or event for, for people in town, they do it in Delta's name. They adhere to specific protocol that, that where they show their organization with honor and class and dignity. They are even prescribed to work on certain educational things. They are prescribed to give back to the poor. And so they want to do this with all the honor and, and dignity that, in which they can. Listen, brothers and sisters, when we go out to work and school each day, when we go out to shop in our grocery stores, when we go out to work, we need to recognize that we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. We got to know who we are. We can't afford to confuse the world by living in the old way when we are new people. So how we, we behave in the health club, how we behave in the grocery store, how we deal with difficulty at work really matters to, to God. That is as much ministry, verse 17 tells us. And whatever we do, we should give glory and honor to God. This is how Paul put it. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all has died. This is what Nick has been preaching for the last couple of weeks our identity in Christ. And he died that for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. So that is what I came to teach you this morning. It's wrapped up in that last verse, verse 17, that we are new. What Christ has done for us in salvation, in sanctification, in regeneration, in justification, and I could keep going on and on, in election. We need to know that, and then we need to embrace it. We need to mark time and say, at this point, I, I, I fully concur with all that God has done for me, and I'm going to live that out. And then in everything that we do as Christians, our desire, our goal is to walk worthy of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Dear Lord, we just uh, recognize that we as Christians have been called to a whole, a high and holy calling. Father, we recognize that in order to be this chosen generation, you, hold, you held nothing back. You even gave us your very life, Lord. You, you sacrificed your life so that we could have this relationship with you. So we thank you for it. And our prayer, Lord, this morning is that those who have not quite come to embrace you would be persuaded, Lord, would be persuaded with that what has been said here is reasonable and will embrace your love and your forgiveness as well as your holiness and righteousness, which is theirs just for the asking. And we pray that, our, that the Christians would walk worthy of the high calling that you have given them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.